Navigating Technology in the Legal Industry with Lori Gonzalez, Episode 118. Are you ready to make your law firm a profit-generating machine that will free up your time and skyrocket your impact? With more than two decades of business growth experience and having proven that you can be successful while prioritizing your family and your impact, introducing the Profit with Law podcast. I am your host, the creator of the firm differentiator 10x effect, Moshe Amsel. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Profit with Law podcast. I'm your host, Moshe Amsel, and today I am with another amazing guest, Lori Gonzalez. Lori Gonzalez is somebody that I came across in a Facebook group of all places, and she was uh, she was putting together a tool that I joined and became a part of. I'm not going to um, talk about it unless she wants to, but that was how I got exposed to her. But apparently she's been around the block quite a while, uh, <laughs> and we're going to have an amazing conversation with her. But let me just tell you a little bit about who Lori Gonzalez is. Lori Gonzalez is the queen at the Reina Corporation, and she's a legal tech lover, process nerd, and promoter of access to justice. She founded the Reina Corporation, a company designed to assist lawyers with finding lost time, both efficiency and true work-life balance. Um, We will have to talk about that. I'm not really sure that that exists. (laughs) She focuses her energy on testing, using, and improving legal tech, as well as process and efficiency improvement. She's a frequent speaker at state and local bar associations and uh, apparently on the Profit With Law podcast, presents at national conferences and facilitates staff trainings for firms. Her service includes the Tennessee Access for Justice Commission's Pro Bono Committee, an organizer of the Music City Legal Hackers, and a subject matter expert for the Nashville Nashville chapter of SCORE. I have always wanted to go to Nashville. I have not gone to Nashville yet. I am a avid country fan. My dog's name is Rascal Flats, just so that you know how country we are. Um, over in New York, we we actually didn't have a country radio station for a very long time, but now we've got 94.7 Nash FM here, and we love it. Um, her most recent service includes creating new tools for A2J, uh, A2J needs with Code for America's National Brigade, and serving on the State Bar of California's Access Through Innovation of Legal Services Task Force. Wow, that is a lot. <laughs> Lori, welcome to the show. I'm not sure uh, what any of that means, and I think I've done it all. So, um, yeah, that's that's the boring bio, blah 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 stuff. I don't know. It wasn't so boring. I, you know, and you're gonna you're gonna have to tell me what the uh, uh, A to J Code for America. I, I I need some more information on what all that stuff is. Ah. Uh. So, well, Code for America is probably one of my favorite organizations that I came across in the last few years ago. It's a volunteer group of civic-minded coders, developers, techies, Um, not related to legal. Uh, Often my favorite things are not related to legal, even though I live in legal. Uh, And so we we have a local chapter in Nashville, but they have chapters all over the U.S. And um, uh, as part of the Music City Legal Hackers, we coordinated with their chapter to produce a couple of hackathons at Vanderbilt Law School. And as part of those hackathons, we developed a couple of tools. One of them is a live functioning power of attorney for immigrant parents. 
uh, who may get deported or detained in Tennessee. And so that the Code for Nashville group took an existing state form, built out a really cool website, uh, and just made it easier for those kind of parents to get a limited springing power of attorney should they be detained or deported. Something very near and dear to my heart as a Gonzalez. Uh, and so the, it was just a, it's a really awesome experience. They're still working on it. We have a global group of volunteers. So we have people in Canada who've worked on it, people in California. Um, one of the coders was in Mexico for a while. And uh, eventually we're hoping we make that something generic enough that it can be used across the nation. So that good. is, that sounds awesome. Um, and I love, I, I love mission purposed uh, things. I love things that are, that are being done um, out of goodness of people's hearts and, and caring for, for others and caring for the community. So uh, totally uh, resonate with what was done. Um, and it sounds cool. Sounds fun. Uh, so uh, kudos to you for for being involved with that. Now, uh, before we go into anything specific, I like to give our listeners an opportunity to really get to know who you are. So, why don't you tell me a little bit about Lori Gonzalez, and not you know not so much the bio, but uh, a little bit about your journey, your story. How how did you end up where you are? What you know where what were the forks in the road that that are most important for our listeners to know and hear about that. Uh, would, would keep us captivated on the edge of our seats for the next five or 10 minutes? Well, um, I think one, I rarely lose never have I ever. Uh, so I have, I have lived a fun, but not always, I shouldn't say fun. I've lived an interesting life, um, grew up really poor and all that good stuff. And we can, we won't go into all the reasons I'm in weekly therapy. So we won't go that far back. <laughs> uh, but my life as a child um, and the coping mechanisms I developed because of my childhood made me a perfect, perfect support person for legal. <laughs> so the running joke is, uh, as a former paralegal, all the issues I had living in an abusive home were perfect to help me get really settled well as a support individual in legal. And that's terrifying to say that out loud and it's kind of snarky, and, but it's also very true. Um, I loved working as a paralegal and legal, but I worked really hard. I was really overwhelmed and it wasn't my law firm. I didn't work harder than the lawyers I worked for. Uh, they did amazing things, but they did them really badly sometimes. Um, not the legal part, everything about running the law firm and all of the ways to accomplish the legal services were just hard and time consuming and didn't work well. And I think that um, breaking free from that space gave me the space to kind of figure out who I am. So who am I? I actually have no idea. I've learned that every day. Who I was three months ago is different than who I was a year ago. But I think if I want anybody to know anything about me, it's that um, I love to have a good time. I love to help people. And I'm also the only person you know probably who's ever dated a Jerry Springer bodyguard. Um, so I've had a fun, fun life. You definitely have that going for you. <laughs> <laughs> and that may only be one of the interesting facts that keep me from always winning a never have I ever game. So I'm there you go. kind of fun to, to party with outside of, you know, the work day. Yeah. Not only do I not know anybody who dated a Jerry Springer bodyguard, but I don't know any Jerry Springer bodyguards either. So <laughs> definitely, definitely oh. unique there. <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't the cool one. It wasn't Steve, but you know, 
he was. He was also guy number three in 400 movies. So there you go. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Lori, I, um, I'm going to jump right into this. You seem to be quite knowledgeable in legal tech. That seems to be your your stomping ground. And I know that law has been on a journey when it comes to tech. And for a long time, we, you know, there was a beating drum about how far behind the legal industry is in adopting tech. And I think that today we're still behind. But I think that that gap is being closed. I think that there's a lot of innovation that's happening, a lot of things that have come to market that have really brought the law firms to a more current state. Uh, Most law firms are not operating without practice management software at this point. you know, there's there's a lot of really cool tools. Uh, we've had uh, tracers here on the podcast, which does all kinds of amazing things with gathering personal information and being able to eliminate a lot of research that happens when it comes with comes to that. Um, we've had Maddie Martin from Smith AI, who's doing all kinds of artificial intelligence stuff to help the front end of your firm and the the way that you communicate with your clients. Um, there's a lot of really really cool stuff out there. As in the seat that you're sitting. Where do you see the biggest gaps? Where do you see the biggest pain points in legal tech that are just not yet solved? Well, this may not be popular, uh, but that's We okay. love unpopular. I, you, I, 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 I never want to be forgettable. So let's start with, let's just start with the big one. I think the biggest hole that is why all of the other holes exist is quite simply only lawyers can invest in lawyers. So legal tech products are built um, in a way that either serve lawyers or possibly serve the community. But if they're serving the community, they're only built by lawyers or they're only invested in by lawyers. And so we have a severe lack of funding and a severe lack of diversity in the creation of effective legal tech tools for the consumer. And so for me, that's it. Now, what, what's what's the reason behind that? Is that is is that because of bar association rules, or is it because of uh, you know is it like the ethical boundaries, or is it because lawyers just don't play, don't play well with others? Um, maybe a little bit of everything. Well, I I'm not sure. I think lawyers don't play well with others because they've been told they can't. Uh huh. Think the rules prohibit any ownership uh, with the exception of DC in the US you can't own a piece of a law firm that provides legal services um, if you're not a lawyer you cannot share fees in any significant way uh, and even in DC that's limited on how much of that ownership is so when a lawyer decides to build a service that's legal tech driven or tech driven um, to, to expand their reach uh, they can pay for it to a vendor um, or they can build them. Um, lawyers really aren't, I don't hire, um, I wouldn't hire lawyers to do data entry in my, in my company, but we have lawyers building products and not that there's no lawyers who can't build products. Of course there are, there's always people who can fit in different seats, but as a whole, the, the, I don't think lawyers' value is in building things. I think it's in their ability to analyze and evaluate risk and provide that sort of high-level knowledge that they have. So 
uh, until lawyers are not responsible for paying for and building the tech tools that serve consumers, we're going to see a huge gap. And, um, and I think it's hard for lawyers to con then connect to technology in a meaningful way, to really value what technologists can bring to the table. So I think the rules are the starting point, but it leads to a whole bunch of other problems. Yeah, so I, I, I want to explain, I want to understand this problem a little bit more. So it, it might be obvious to some who are listening, but um, it, I, as a non-lawyer, it's not, you know, although I'm exposed to lawyers all the time and I, I'm quite well versed in what's going on, I want to make sure they understand what you're saying. Are you saying that in order to provide a tech tool that provides some sort of legal service or legal alternative, alternative to going to a lawyer to get it done, that has to be owned by a lawyer? If so, for example, providing legal services, I cut you off. Say that again. I'm sorry. No, actually, I cut you off. But thank you. That was very sweet. Sorry. Um, if the technology provides legal services. Um, so I can't I can't provide anything defined as a legal service through a technology platform I own if I'm not a lawyer. Let me ask you this question. So is legal zoom is like the the example everyone uses for a tech product that's providing a service that typically would have been provided by an attorney although entity formation can be provided by an accountant it's not necessarily a legal service per se is legal zoom an example of what you're referring to that that needs to be owned by an attorney and and then on, on top of that i know a lot of attorneys who are providing services are are restricted to the state that they're that they're barred with and so how do you how do you navigate that like even the attorneys how do they navigate providing a, a tech tool that could provide the same service to people across the united states but if it's not a federal based service they are not allowed to practice in these other states so that creates complexities there for them as well right so you're highlighting, so one, let me start with LegalZoom. LegalZoom does not provide legal services. LegalZoom provides fill-in-the-blank forms, and they've just built really great questionnaires. But there's no logic behind their fill-in-the-blank forms. They cannot provide additional advice on top of the forms. Actually, LegalZoom is one of the favorite um, sort of models, people say, well, see, this is what happens when you let non-lawyers, and by the way, I actually hate the word non-lawyer as a non-lawyer. I mean, I'm not a non-anything, and I'm betting you're not a non-anything either. Even the way we separate lawyers from everyone else, when was the last time you walked into a medical office and called everyone who wasn't the doctor a non-doctor? They right. had titles. All the time. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm going, hey, non-doctor Amy, can you, you know, call the doctor back? The idea that we confuse consumers if we don't highlight who's a lawyer and who's a not, I think is kind of ridiculous to me. And I think that barrier we built is another reason why it's so hard for the legal profession to really understand the value that all these other disciplines bring. But going back to LegalZoom, if LegalZoom could point you in the right direction, LegalZoom could be a better product. So the rules that prohibit LegalZoom from building out, think about TurboTax. If you're a business owner and you go into TurboTax and you use their free version, they ask you a few questions and at some point TurboTax says, hey dummy, I don't think you should use this free version. I think you need a better version or you need to hire a CPA. 
that process in itself is guiding you with financial advice. So LegalZoom does not have that ability. They cannot do that. That becomes advice and it gets in this weird, totally undefined. There's actually not a definition of the practice of law that's clearly written out anywhere in the US. Uh, there's case law that may define it in certain states. But what is the practice of law? No one agrees on. It's a crazy, crazy thing that that even the industry that provides the service cannot define the service that it <laughs> provides. And so someone like LegalZoom <clears throat> can really only ask a question that fills in a blank. So it's not providing legal services. It's just a fill in the blank product. And because of that, people fill in the blanks wrong sometimes. It, people need guidance. That product would be so much better if it could provide some advice along with it. So I think that's the whole legal zoom. Your question about how do people build a product, a lawyer across states, that's a fascinating, I have no idea. Um, that's a great question <laughs> and definitely not one I'm qualified to answer. Um, but I think it highlights the bigger issue right now. The legal industry as a whole, it's not just technology. How we provide services, we haven't kept up with how the world works. We're a global economy. economy. We're a global marketplace. Um, I, I don't think I, I order things and interact with people all over the US every day. I know you do, we all do. And yet we still have this very outdated one-on-one -on -one model in legal where one lawyer provides services to one consumer, whether that's a corporation or an individual. We haven't figured out how to scale some of that um, in, in enough ways. There's it's it's, yeah, it's interesting that you highlight that because one of the, one of the things that I have been beating a drum to, and this is not a, a tech issue um this is a a service delivery and and it's 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 exactly what you're describing there's a ton of consumers out there who need help but are not willing or able for whatever reason to get you to help them personally and what's interesting is is that the legal industry is one that has com turned a complete blind eye to other ways of serving the constituents that they're you know the population that that would otherwise be their clientele. And the, the solution that I have been proposing is information products. Um, the coaching, education, you know, courses, membership um, industry is a uh, multi-billion dollar industry, if not reaching a trillion dollar industry. I don't know what the actual numbers are, um, but it's huge. I mean, you've got, you know, massive sites like lynda.com, which was bought by LinkedIn. Uh, you know, there's a ton of, of, of um, Stack Social, which does a lot of, you know, um, social education, stuff like that. Uh, there's, there's, there is a market for uh, education. And you as an attorney, you have this brain on your shoulders that has all this information. And all you have to do is put that information on camera, on audio, in written word, and you can turn around and sell it and serve a much larger client base than you're able to serve one-on-one. -on -one. So now you're doing one-to-many and you're, and you're not needing to do the work over and over again. It's just so much smarter to do it that way. Not that you're eliminating the service delivery. You're still going to have people who want to work with you one-on-one. -on -one. You're still going to have that clientele. It's not going to affect that at all. It's going to serve the people who otherwise would be saying no to your retainer. They, you know, they, they otherwise would be saying, no, I'm not, I, I, I can't plunk down $10,000.
Yeah. But if I could pay a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks and learn how to do it myself, I'd do that in an instant. And I think that that's right. a perfect solution to start that process of of decoupling the attorney from thinking that I need to work hours in order to earn money. Well, and then that gets back to the billable hour. And so, you know, what's interesting is there, there are different practices of law that have handled the business of law differently. So personal injury attorneys clearly working on contingency fees, mass tort, you know, all of those, they've actually developed some pretty amazing business models. They're more apt to use technology. They're more apt to pay for marketing. They're more apt to do all of these things that are traditionally business development because they've had to, right? They have a, they have a fee that doesn't get bigger the more they work. It actually, their profit increases. The fee stays the same. So um, how, how we kind of help other lawyers expand that same idea, even if they are billing by the hour, um, the amount of time that is spent on non-billable work, in, especially in small law. Uh, I think there's a group of people who float around the access to justice world and the legal tech space who really believe small and solo lawyers are the best weapon against the access to justice issues uh, because they're in the community. Trust is still a major thing and people want to trust you. But in the smaller you get, the more likely that, that they're sort of trapped in the same model that's been the model for 100 years. And unfortunately, the education we provide lawyers as they continue down their path, the approved education that they're required to get to maintain their license, the majority of that still comes from other lawyers. So when lawyers teach lawyers marketing, guess what you don't have? Experts in marketing teaching lawyers how to market. You have lawyers who learned how to market from other experts teaching them how to do that. When lawyers teach administrative items, when lawyers teach tech, when lawyers teach, um, and again, I'm not suggesting that lawyers can't learn that and really have a good knowledge, but they're not the experts. Uh, they don't devote their entire professional lives to that, that um, industry. They're, that is not their wheelhouse. And if it is, it's because they transition from being a lawyer into that space. So this model of lawyers teaching lawyers how to do things means we've closed in the knowledge base so that we're really not expanding and exposing them to all of the things that they could really, really do uh, if they were empowered. And again, I think money talks no matter what. And if you could um, actually see partnerships coming out of small firms and lawyers who need to build better products, who have an idea but don't know where to start, man, the, the ways you could empower those firms to, to meet a much larger need would be crazy. Um, so I'm definitely not very popular uh, opinion among many people in legal. Uh, there's a fear that if we open up investment funding uh, into legal services that big companies and the, you know, big four accounting come in and start providing lesser services to the masses. Um, I'm also someone who thinks that's what's called for. Um, most people don't need a high priced lawyer uh, to handle the most basic of legal services. And so how do we empower lawyers to provide those lesser services in a way that the consumers want? It's about consumer choice for me, not really giving them the top-notch service. Right. And in reality, what, what's happening is, is in the name of, of ethical responsibility and morality, the legal industry is 
is putting the 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 entire work the entire legal um, system uh, eliminating it or extracting it from a, a democratic economy you know so we we it, the rest of the economy runs based on supply and demand mm -hmm. and based on just you know the money will will drive the situation um, and by removing that uh, it's um, it's basically remove that possibility, which 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 is exactly what you're what you're laying out there. It's stunting the growth. It's removing, um, you know, the. It's not just the infusion of capital. It's the infusion of talent. Also, you know, the most talented people want an ownership stake in what they're doing. Exactly. They don't. It's not. It's not so much. Oh, I want. You know, you you can't. We can't invest two hundred and fifty million dollars into your company. It's I can't get this. It, it, you know, exquisite mind who's going to be able to build this app the way that we, you know, and, and drive the building of this app the way that we need it because they want to own 50% of this company because they're building it. Um, now, I do think, I mean, there's a ton of industries with regulatory oversight. So there's got to be a way to solve this problem where it's not all or nothing. And, you know, where there is, you know, checks and balances put in place, um, you know, and, and maybe it's just majority minority stakes that the attorney has to always have the, you know, the the, the final say in, 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 you know, over the business and they keep a majority stake and you can still get investors in. Uh, that sounds to me like that would that would be a good step in the right direction to solving the problem. One of the things that I think is interesting about that argument, and I'm not sure where I fall, quite frankly, on that. Um, do I think lawyers and not all lawyers, right? But do I think lawyers as a skill set, as an industry, are the best people to be in charge of business? No, I don't. Because I don't think any part of the training that they, there is no, there's very little. There is now starting to become, as part of the curriculum in law school, business management training or practice management training. But what they do to become lawyers does not involve any typically emphasis on how to build or develop or grow or manage a business, right? So do I think that they're skilled and trained in how to run a business? No, that's not part of their curriculum. So if they get that outside from somewhere, then yes, they're the best person for that. But just because they're a lawyer doesn't make them the best person to run a law firm. Um, what's interesting about sort of the idea of are there other models? I, I love to talk about like, you know, we all sit in these chairs now, my back hurts all the time. And as a consumer who needs medical care, I have lots of options. Guess where I'm not going to start? An orthopedic surgeon, right? That's lawyers are trained for trial. They're trained as that surgeon level high skill function. But I could actually just go see a good old fashioned chiropractor. I pay a lot less money and it probably would solve my problem. And if it didn't, I could go to a physical therapist. I could go see my primary care physician. I could get a shot. You can get the Soothe app. I, I could get the Soothe app. I could buy some whatever those heating pads are, right? Like the little ones you just throw away. I have so many options to alleviate my pain and it is my pain to deal with. And the what I believe in, what I'm willing to do to my body, what uh, funds I have to deal with that problem are all going to influence my decision. And it is my decision. We don't do that in legal. Everyone goes to see an orthopedic surgeon to solve their needs uh, in legal. So we have these highly skilled surgeons. 
often doing massages and getting paid for massages and no one's happy. And for me, that's such a stark reality of what we're missing here. So um, I don't know if a majority ownership, that's, it's so funny, that's the one that's probably the easiest for the group to swallow whenever we're having those discussions. Uh, certainly we talked about this for a year and a half on the task force in California. Utah has come out with some, um, some regulatory suggestions and changes around 5.4. Both, in both states, it was very heavily contested. Well, I don't know about Utah, but in both states, there was a lot of pushback, and the suggestion was we should build a sandbox to test these theories out, uh, which would be fine if 80 to 86 percent of people who needed their legal services were getting it. But that's the number that's available in the market for lawyers to take on if they can figure this out. That's such a huge amount of consumers who are just sitting around waiting for a better answer. Um, so I'm not a fan of the sandbox items or thought process because I think it's too little, too little and it's too slow. Um, but again, it's not always very popular in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I also think that you, you your position, as unpopular as it might be, is also um, it's you. You feel very strongly in one direction, and I don't think that all of your assumptions are absolutely true. Like, for example, um, attorneys are not best, you know, at running a business, and that's a global statement that is true on the majority of the level uh, of levels. But if you look at the, there are some law firms that are successful from day one. And if you look at their owner, they're really good business owners, like they're making smart decisions when it comes to business. And it could be that they had training as a child, like it could be they had a parent who, you know, modeled for them. It could be that they read other books while they were in school and law school, uh, or it could be that they just have a knack for it. But there's definitely lawyers out there that are equipped in these different areas. Um, and, you know, your example of, of marketing, it, it may or may not be true. I'm thinking of Seth Price. Uh, you know Seth Price, right? From um, uh, So he's um, uh, Price uh, um, Benowitz, I think is the name of the firm in the D.C. area is where I believe they're located. Um, it's a 40-person law firm, and he also owns a company, Blue Shark Digital. So yeah. he started his law firm with a partner. The partner focused on, on the legal side. He focused on the business building side and ultimately ended up opening up a marketing agency for law firm owners. Uh, so we had him as a speaker in uh, uh, on our, our law firm growth summit back in December. Um, and I mean, he knows marketing. He, I, knows, he knows business. I am excited about those lawyers. But I don't think you can give me 100 examples like him. Uh, I'm betting you can't give me 50 examples like him. And so I think what I'm suggesting is not that no lawyer is a good businessman. That would be stupid to say that. And it's not true. And that's not the global statement I said. I think what I'm saying is, do I think the rule should require lawyers to be in charge of all law firms? Globally, do I believe, and I don't mean globally like the globe itself, I mean across the board, do we think that lawyers are trained as part of their professional development to run a law firm effectively through lawyer CLEs and all the things they're required to do? And I think right. 
to that is no. So I'm not saying lawyers should never be in charge. I think they should be in charge, especially when they've done the work to go out. I guarantee you, Seth Price, he busted his ass to learn what he needed to learn about the marketing side. And he's probably brilliant at it. I'm sure he's brilliant at it. That's an amazing example of a lawyer who probably doesn't spend most of his time lawyering. Is right. Developing the business or is he being a lawyer? And I'm just suggesting that can you do both? Absolutely. But can the majority of lawyers do both? Probably not. Right. But maybe we're maybe we're even asking the wrong question, right? So I I'm it's I I don't I think if we ask the question of, you know, are lawyers capable of doing this? I think that number one, you're we're right off the bat we're insulting all lawyers, right? And number two, we're What's that? I think they're very capable. I would right. never just they're not capable. They're lawyers. They're right. capable. Right. So my but my point is is right away we're putting them on the defense and that's not really the question. Right? Yeah. The real question is is can you can you serve clients ethically when the owner is not a lawyer? Sure. And right, and that's the question that needs to be asked. Like why are we afraid of non lawyers, I know you hate the term, but why are we afraid of non-owners having an equity stake or even owning a law firm? I, um, the argument that I hear regularly from those who make these rules or who influence these rules or who believe in these rules, we're going to get, we're going to get there in just one moment. So I, I just want to paint this picture, you know, in any other field, like if I wanted to start a landscaping business, I can start a landscaping business and hire the best landscaper in the country to work for me and do the most beautiful landscaping. And I don't have to know the first thing about how to turn on a lawnmower. I don't even have to know what a lawnmower is. Yes. And so why can't I start a law firm and hire the best attorneys to work for me to produce the best legal product and it's my business? just like in any other in any other industry. So what is the argument? Why why is there this tremendous pushback and and you know and this huge issue with non-attorneys quote unquote owning but, an equity stake or owning an entire practice. So there are a couple of things I hear. Uh, one is that a non-attorney cannot understand the ethical implications and aren't bound by the ethical implications that lawyers are. And then that leads into, and if the lawyer is an employee or doesn't have the final say or the majority stakeholder um, ability, then they can be overruled or their professional judgment can be impaired by the big bad person with dollars. Um, so the idea is only lawyers truly understand the ethical implications and ways of providing legal services ethically, which I don't think is true. I think lots of businesses do things ethically. I also think there are plenty of lawyers who walk an ethical line. And so right. people are people, right? Like you're going to have right. good, bad in all industries. But and and that's such an easy problem to solve because, first of all, to just assume that somebody can't learn ethics is like assuming that a lawyer can't learn how to run a business, right? It's the same thing. A lawyer can learn how to run a business and a, a business owner can learn how to be ethical. So why not 
create this regulatory body that says if you want to open a law practice, you have to sit through a eight hour, a 40 hour ethics class, get certified on it, and you have to sign your personal statement of, of intent and commitment to abide by this ethical by these ethical rules. And then your your business is just as much on the line as any other lawyer's business today is on the line with them losing their license to operate if they violate those ethics. So licensure of businesses has been a, a hot topic, I think. And I will say, you know, I've heard some really great arguments about how, you know, one of the ways that the the industry feels it protects itself is you can lose your law license if you're unethical. But if you're a business and there is no, and, and there's no one who governs you for providing those services, right? Then there's no way to shut you down if you're doing anything um, unethical or illegal or taking advantage. So it's not as simple. And I, I, even I agree, it's not as simple as, you know, actually creating a regulatory body across all states, or then you get back into even how do attorneys practice in the existing model across states? How do you develop a business that can practice? Who's going to be in charge of deciding who gets those licenses, who's going to monitor them, who's going to take those away there. I understand that the legal industry is regulated for a very good reason. And I don't think that I, that any of us have all the answers. Um, I just know what we're doing now isn't working and the tiny baby steps we keep taking. Uh, I will say, I'm not sure. I believe, I think a code of conduct or ethics Ethics is not a, a, a idea that only lives in the legal industry. I run an ethical business for lawyers. I could do crappy things that took advantage of lawyers, and that would be unethical. Um, I, I, I have ethics as a business owner. I'm sure you have ethics as a business owner. This Absolutely. This is fun because we're both kind of like, I think we agree, but maybe not on everything, you know, even in how we're having this conversation, I think highlights how much we both care about this industry. Um, so the idea that you're going to, that corporations and businesses aren't ethical, um, you know, I think that sort of as a global statement is, is another, is, I'm just not sure I buy that business businesses are more or less ethical than lawyers. I think that statement is unfair. I don't think it's true. I think, again, people are people and people are going to do things no matter what industry they're in based on their own value system. I'll be honest with you, Lori. I never thought that when we started this interview that this is what we would spend our entire hour on. But let me, let me, ask, you, let me ask you this. Oh, gosh. Obviously, obviously to, to make this... Um, to make this change requires a force to push it through, right? Somebody has to be driving this agenda to make it happen and has to have the air of the right people to, to, be, to be bringing it even to light and to spearhead the project, right? So does that exist today? Is there, is, is there any sort of organization? Are there dollars behind it? Uh, you know, is there something that is going to effectuate this change or is it just us having a conversation, making people aware of it, that's going to just keep punting this ball down the road. Where, where are we at with that? So I think, um, one, I think that's a big question. There's a lot of answers to that, and I only have a few of them. So I think, I think there are a lot of small groups and a lot of small, I, I, I don't want to, I don't mean small by minimizing them. I mean, 
California had a task force, right? Year and a half to put together recommendations. Those recommendations, some they're still being worked through. That's going to take, you know, who knows how long to get them through and make the final decision on what those recommendations look like. Then you've got to implement them. There's those kind of things. Utah is doing some really interesting things. Arizona is doing some interesting things. So there are states that are putting together very individualized for, um, oh, task force and, and things of that nature. Um, the ABA, of course, has the American Bar Association. Mm -hmm. They have, it's interesting for me because I've, I've had some, some good, bad feelings about kind of what's happening there. The ABA is looked to as a model for what's happening, but this is, but I believe from the ABA standpoint, this is really more supposed to be a state driven focus. Right. So I think if you're interested in this and you think this needs to change, you should be focused on your state bar associations and state groups that can influence the bars. Um, I think that as states make changes that could come across. What's interesting to me is globally, um, I once was at a legal geek conference and they, they showed the top 15 provider of legal services globally. Um, PwC was in the top 10 or 15, which is a big four accounting firm. So this already is happening in a lot of other places, it's just not happening in the US. So from a group standpoint, Man, um, I think Twitter is always a good place to hunt down these kind of conversations. There's certainly those conversations are hap happen on Twitter in that small space. What are the, what are the hashtags? Uh, uh, well, ATILS was the California task force. There was a bunch of stuff around there. Um, I think one of my favorite people to follow is um, Joanna Mendoza, and I think she's at Legal Disruptor. Uh, she was, she helped put together this task force and she's been very uh, good to do this. If you want to know the experts who are talking about this, Jillian Hadfield, H-A-D-F-I-E-L-D. She wrote a book, um, Flat Rules, uh, Rules for a Flat World, I think was the name of the book, but she's huge in really bringing forth the reasons for this to happen. She's a professor and super smart about this. Uh, there's some cool research being done by Rebecca Sandifer and William Henderson has uh, also put out, um, he put out a legal landscapes report that was fascinating. So there's definitely information around. I'll try to share all that with you later so that you can send it out to your group for anyone who's interested, but um, takes a little digging because we're still just scratching at the surface. It's a whole lot of feels like small pockets of it all trying mm -hmm. to figure out, but also working together. I do think those who are interested in it are trying to work together. Um, just getting a consensus and, and finding a way to, as an industry and a personality, lawyers are risk adverse. Um, this is risk adverse means we go so slow. It's really hard for us to make a big impact. Yeah. And I honestly, I think that the risk adversity is because that's what's beat into them in law school. I, you know, like you're, you, everything is is afraid of losing my license, right? I, I, I have to be careful about how I, you know, my ult, my Ulta account is because my license is on the line. I have to be careful. I can't do that marketing because I'm not allowed to do that. My license is on the line. Like this, it, it, they're always in this fear mode of losing the legal license at the law license now. 
I, I get it. I, you know, I would also be if that was my livelihood and I worked so hard for it, like I don't want to lose my license, but at the same time, it, that's a problem. And, and the big problem is so is, is, is such that a lot of it is based on hearsay. They haven't, you know, your lawyers, Read, read your own ethical rules, you know, like so many lawyers have not read the rules. How many marketing conversations I've had with business owners, you know, owning a law firm saying, oh, I'm not allowed to do that. The ethical requirements don't allow it. Really? Really? I, Let's go read them. I'm going to fall on the side of the lawyers here. And, and one of the most eye-opening experiences for me was sitting in a room full of lawyers who have written and interpreted ethical rules for 20 plus years and couldn't agree on a rule that they helped write um, what it actually meant because and so I, I don't think that lawyers don't read the rules I think that the rules are written in such a way to account for so many possibilities that by the time you add in all the words no one knows what the hell they actually mean and so there's so much confusion about what lawyers are allowed to do i a hundred percent sympathize and empathize with what it would be like to try to run a business from there and so i think that risk adversity is is rightfully earned and i agree with you beat into them in a thousand ways not just in law school but as they continue on their path um, but what is the enemy of entrepreneurship? What is the enemy of innovation? Fair. Risk adversity, right? You have to be willing to take risks to innovate. Mm -hmm. Have to be willing to take risks to grow a business, to start a business, to be a real entrepreneur. And so we've created an industry where only businesses can be formed and developed by people who are trained and beat into them constantly not to take risks. And it's, it's, it's so unfair to lawyers. I love lawyers. I, the greatest honor of my professional life has been to live and breathe and serve in this industry, both inside law firms and out. Um, I think people think I, I'm snarky, but I'm snarky because I give, I care so much about how hard life is in the legal field. And it's hard because we're we're trying to do everything ourselves and we just don't have to. We don't have to do this on our own. And we do until the rules change. Let me, let me back up. Yeah. yeah until the rules change. <laughs> well, I, you know, we, we, this conversation, we, we honed in on this one point. Um, I, I do want to point out one thing, and that is that this entire problem that you highlighted is preventing one part of tech the tech that would serve the consumer. Yeah. So the, the consumer facing legal tech, uh, but there's so much else in the legal tech that can serve the law firm that doesn't have to have this restriction. So I think we probably need to, <laughs> to have another conversation so we can cover uh, some of those. About that too. <laughs> so I know shocking, shocking that I might have some opinions about that. Now I think that's, uh, I think there are also lots of people who who struggle with that and lots of people who are doing great things with that. So, um, yeah, would love to chat about that someday. Awesome. Well, Lori, it's been it's been a, it's been a fun conversation. It's actually been eye opening for me because I've been very, very um, uh, uninvolved and on the periphery of this discussion. Uh, I know it. I know it's happening and I know that it's a problem. But uh, it has not been where I am getting my feet wet uh, yet. 
you know, so maybe, maybe it is something that I do get heavily involved in at some point, but, um, I'm working with law firm owners. Their, their number one concern is not how do I bring in an investor? You know, their, their number one concern is how do I build and grow my practice to be where, what I want it to be? Um, which is why it hasn't been on my radar because I'm not, that my audience is not the ones who are trying to get that foot in the door. I challenge you to ask your firms if they were allowed to invest, mm-hmm. would they be for an investor? They're not looking for an investor because they're not allowed to have an investor. Right. But, so it's a curious, it's a curious problem, right? Right. Would, would firms like the ones you work with who clearly are focused on profits and, and engagement, would they be interested in, in investment if that was possible? I yeah, would- I would. I would tell you that there's one area where the answer would definitely be yes, and that is to um, reward a star employee. So law firms who really make traction and really get success, it's because they have that number two person who's the non-lawyer who's running the firm. That's, it, you know, sometimes it's the, it's the law firm owner, but when you grow beyond yourself, very often it's not... It's not the lawyer who started the firm who learns how to manage the staff, who learns how to operate the software and and learns how to manage the clients. It's somebody else who's sitting in that office manager, whatever you want to call it, seat, who's doing the heavy lifting for the firm. And in any normal environment, when you have a number two who's, who's that valuable in the company, at some point, they'll get an equity stake. And I think that's where, for my clients, I think it's more about not bringing an outside investor, but how do I, how do I reward my employees in a way that I'm still within my ethical, you know, guidelines? Can I do profit sharing? Can I, you know, what, what are, what am I allowed to do, not allowed to do? And why am, are my hands tied when it comes to being able to reward somebody for their hard work in the company I've built? Yeah, I think that's a perfect example of um, lawyers are really lawyers are the ones who suffer by the rules. Um, everyone else is going to figure something else out. Um, so that's a perfect example. And, and how could they bring in talent when they're young and growing? The business is young and growing. Um, equity is how you would do that. Um, so not to mention that lawyers hate when the opposing party is self-representing because then they have to deal with somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and it makes their job harder. You know, like the, why not, why not give them the right tools and educate them so that at least you have a good product on the other side of the table when you're, when you're in that, in, in that courtroom. That's a fascinating business model, building tools for the other side. Now that gets into the whole advocacy and ethical obligations to your client versus the other side. But that's a fascinating idea for me is what if you built tools for the self-represented other side just to help them navigate the court system? Right. Which is why I think it should be that conversation should be happening the other way. The conversation should be how do we empower legal tech companies to be owned by non-lawyers? Because if they're owned by a lawyer now, you've got all kinds of conflicts uh, issues. What if two opposing sides are using my software. I think that's, I think that depends on the services providing, right? Like that gets real, and that's way over our heads. Quite frankly, for sure. either one of us have spent enough time in the ethics side of that to understand where that falls. Although I will share, um, 
uh, Erin Levine, Levine um, of Hello Divorce. If you've never had her on the show. I haven't. Um, is doing some amazing things. She built a DIY platform for divorce. Uh, she's won all kinds of awards and, and her model lets people get divorced without the assistance of a lawyer. And in that case, she's able to serve both sides. Um, so she would have way more information. Uh, and Megas, Megan Zavaya is my ethical like queen who knows everything. Um, she might be one of the few people I will refer to as the queen besides myself. Um, she's true genius at the ethics side of that. So uh, also great people to connect with and follow if you're interested in how to, how to work in the bounds of the current ethical rules and, and really expand your services. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to have uh, uh, Mimi on my team go through and extract all the names that you've mentioned and hit you up privately to uh, perhaps make an intro for us so that we can bring some of them here onto the show because uh, th these are all amazing topics that, that I'd, love to, I'd love to bring to the forefront and, and share with our listeners. So uh, I do appreciate uh, your depth of knowledge in the subject matter, even though you've said many times that you're just scratching the surface. You're not really the professional in this, you know, in this argument, but you obviously have your opinions, which happy you shared them here. We, we love opinions. We, it's, it, this is a show about, I mean, I, I have my opinion every week. I do a solo episode every Tuesday and I, you know, uh, I share what I have to share. But in these interviews, I get to highlight somebody else and we want to know the truth. We want to know what you're feeling. We want to know what's going on. So I think that this was a, a, a wonderful way to bring this issue to, to the spotlight. And I am starting to see this conversation pop up here and there. Different Facebook groups, different, you know, uh, Slack channel conversations. And, you know, the, it's, I just don't know what's driving the conversation. I don't know because right now all the groups I'm in, they're being asked by lawyers. So it's, you know... Who, change suggestions that are driving those. That's what's been really fascinating. The last two years have seen a huge, um, I think, movement. I, I think the movement's been there, but I think you're just seeing it highlighted and getting out to the masses more. So I, I think the group we met in has had some conversations about these. And um, so thank you. This was actually a ton of fun. I love this back and forth. I had no idea what we were going to talk about either. So, <laughs> so I'd, I wouldn't have guessed this would be it. But um, yeah, this is fun. This is a lot of fun. All right, Laurie, before you go, how do our listeners connect with you if they want to uh, get in touch, uh, follow up with you, take any next steps, just uh, uh, share that with us. So um, I'm always on, well, I won't say I'm always on Twitter, but Twitter is an easy place to find me at RainaCorp, R-A-Y-N-A-C-O-R-P. You can always email me. It's Lori at RainaCorp.com, um, or you can visit us on our website at RainaCorp.com. But always available and happy to give anything I can offer. And um, if cool with you, I'll very happily share with the listeners who are interested, the resources for legal Slack group. Sure. It is a group of 200 plus helpful people who are very knowledgeable and people like Maddie Martin, who's amazing. And like I stalk her incessantly. Um, so full of tons of helpful people and happy to share that. And so Slack's a great way to communicate for me too. Yeah. Share it, please. Great. All right. Uh, do you want to give instructions of how somebody can join that group right here? Um, you know, I'll, um, I will, send you an email. yes, I'll send you an email. You, it is invite only because we want to okay. keep it to the, I'll, I can share an invite link 
we are keeping it off of social media that's open to the public. We want it to be a safe space for legal professionals of all types. Um, so we are keeping it to the legal industry only. Um, but that's it. Otherwise, it's completely open, whether you are a lawyer or awesomely without a law license, whether you're a marketer for legal or a legal tech builder or a paralegal or a secretary or a lawyer, everyone's invited into the group. So I'll share a link that's accessible. All right. Um, so, uh, well, I'll, I'll check with you offline on how you want to logistically do that. But uh, folks, you're definitely invited to join that Slack channel and uh, follow up with Lori. Follow her on Twitter. Stalk her there. Uh, send her emails. Get her phone number. Put it out. <laughs> put it out on the Internet. Everybody call her. But anyway, this is it's been a lot of fun and I, I've just enjoyed the conversations. So thank you so much for for your time. And um, with that, folks, we'll catch you on Tuesday for our next solo episode and stay well, stay safe. Have you been enjoying the show? We sure hope so. To make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button in your podcast player app. Next week, we will be back with more valuable resources and ideas on how to break the mold and take your law firm to the next level.